Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I'm joined today by a couple of guests. I've got uh, Yolanda Wright with me. Hi, Yolanda. Hi. And Larry Cooley. Hi, Larry. Good morning. Great to be with you both. Of course, Larry, you are a returning guest to this show. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus and Senior Advisor at Management Systems International, among many other hats, uh, and somebody we often turn to for all things international development and especially USAID related. And uh, Yolanda, it's your first time joining us, and you're the Vice President of Partnerships at Give Directly. It's great to be with the two of you on what is, as always, a busy news week. Um, obviously, COP has just wrapped up, and I don't know if either of you were there. I was there myself, just got back from Dubai. I'm back here in D.C. But I'd love to get a take from, from each of you on, on what you thought of it, whether you were there in person or from a distance. Yolanda, maybe I can start with you. Yeah, I was there for a couple of days um, last week, actually. And um, I've been watching closely as the final days became very dramatic. And uh, we really weren't sure whether there was going to be a kind of satisfactory conclusion that, that the nation's collectively could sign up to. So I think there's huge relief that, that that we did reach a sort of reasonable final text and and that there was a sort of word acceptable wording on phasing out fossil fuels. I think that was um, you know, kind of really welcomed. But I feel that many sort of civil society organizations and particularly low-income countries where, you know, Give Directly um and my other colleagues work most um most do feel a bit unsatisfied that um A the you know, the overall language is quite weak, particularly the adaptation um, language and adaptation commitments, money to help people adapt to the already significant impacts of climate change is very um, wishy-washy. You know, there's it's not a lot of clarity. There's not a lot of clarity about additional financing being made available. And, and we really welcome the loss and damage fund being created. But again, there's quite a feeling that although I think it's now 800 million has been committed to that fund, it's likely to need a, a huge amount more really um, in the long run to be a kind of realistic fund for the sort of damages that we're already seeing. Yeah, it's hard to, to know what to make of some of these commitments and agreements. You know, to me, some of it feels like pledge inflation, where uh, organizations just try to keep one-upping each other on pledges, but then you wonder how much actually comes through. And of course, we try to monitor that here at DevX. It's tough to do. It's tough to know whether it's really new money, you know, in that loss and damage fund, that $800 million, you know, how much of it is actually new money or how much of it is money that was already pledged or would have been pledged to global development efforts as, as ODA and is just being retargeted. Um, and as you say, one of the stats that was thrown around quite a bit during the week is that money for adaptation is actually down this year versus last year. So adaptation disappointment was, I think, one one theme. I don't know, Larry, what, what, are you, what was your take from uh, what, what just took place in Dubai? I sort of hate to start on a down note, but I was pretty disappointed. The, I, I didn't have enormous expectations, but I expected even somewhat better than what emerged from it. I think language matters in this, and committing to things versus aspiring for them is a big difference. I no longer take pledges at face value, as you just implied. And so I think it's important to keep moving forward. I think 
the fact, for example, some years ago that people started the language about one and a half degrees has really made a difference, even when the pledges didn't keep up. Uh, but I think that we've got a long way to go. And it, as everyone's beginning to realize, public funding is critical, but it's not going to be the margin of difference. We need to somehow change the incentive structure for the private sector if this is going to move at the pace it needs to. And it didn't seem to me there was a lot of evidence that that is yet happening. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we had several people on our stage at our Climate Plus event. DevX hosted a full day conference there in Dubai during the COP. And several people were saying that you really do need a massive increase in private investment. But that also implies a massive increase in public investment. Sort of the two go hand in hand. And that we didn't get that. Um, We did have a piece this week published by Stephanie Beasley, our philanthropy correspondent, which kind of outlines a lot of the big commitments made by philanthropies. And there were a lot. And, you know, some of the people I talked to about COP in Dubai focus very much on the official proclamation, the outcome documents, the global stock take, and others focus much more on what happens on the sidelines, you know, sort of the side deals made by philanthropies and businesses and, you know, donor agencies and the like. And in some ways, COP has become that sort of convening moment, that forcing Mm -hmm. mechanism for those sorts of things. Uh, You know, what's your feeling about that, Larry? I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think it's important, too, because in the absence of global governance on these sorts of things, informal mechanisms need to take the place of that. And this is as close as there is in the climate space. So I think to keep the heat up on these sorts of events, no pun intended, as much as possible on this is really important. And until somebody comes up with a better way to have something that's either either binding or at least compelling for people, I think putting them together in the same place at the same time at least increases the likelihood that some of those things will emerge spontaneously. Yolanda, putting on your Give Directly hat, you know, you focus on this idea of cash payments. Do you see opportunities within the climate conversation, particularly around adaptation, where you think you know, that message is maybe not being fully understood or the opportunity isn't fully understood. Tell us a little bit more about what you were talking about when you were there in Dubai. Well, I think it it relates to what you were saying, that we need to be able to see really how much climate finance is actually reaching the ground. And I think how much climate finance is particularly reaching the most vulnerable households on the absolute front line of the climate crisis. And so one of the things that we were talking about when we were there was um, the potential of direct cash transfers to address adaptation and resilience and also loss and damage. Um, We've actually got um, some great results coming out now from our lump sum cash transfer payments on how they have supported households to diversify their income sources, which is a really key part of resilience, also, um, you know, adapting their agricultural practices, that takes a risk-taking behavior, right? People to change practices, to try something new, new seeds, new irrigation techniques, new soil conservation techniques. That does require low-income households and farmers to, you know, take risks and try something new. And we've seen really good results with giving people kind of lump sum cash payments that they can then use that to kind of invest and try new things. Um, So we've we really think that could be an important part of adaptation and resilience building and potentially loss and damage as well. We recognise um, there were a lot of people talking about how loss and damage isn't just economic. I mean, we see a huge terrifying statistics about 
the kind of um, loss and damages that we're seeing from extreme climate events around the world. But but in addition to that, people from small island states, etc., were talking about you know their loss of cultural heritage, etc. So we recognise money isn't everything, but I think it's a huge amount. And uh, you know when we saw the figures about commitments to tripling investment in renewables, when you look a bit deeper, you know you can see some really unfair um, skewing of where those investments are going and how really small percentages of that are going to Africa, for example. So I think, you know, really putting a spotlight on where is the finance flowing and how much of it is really reaching the most vulnerable households is really important. Yeah, and some of it comes down to kind of our mental model around what is climate and what is development and how do these things actually interact. Like when we talk about climate finance, some people say those terms and what they mean is renewable energy. They're thinking about solar panels and the like and really what we might call mitigation. And you know, many others are thinking about adaptation as you are, Yolanda. And, and we actually, in naming our event during the, the summit, we called it Climate Plus because we want to talk about climate plus food and climate plus health and climate plus finance and kind of think about all the places where the traditional global development work is now fundamentally shifting. And we're kind of entering this new moment where we maybe don't even have the language to describe it, but everything is affected. So even, as you say, cash transfers to a smallholder farmer, which some years ago we might have thought of as, well, that's just agriculture support, food security, or you know, livelihood. Well, actually, it's also climate, as you say, because it's about resilience. So the way we think about this, the models, I think, are in a moment of flux. And where we land might also affect, you know, where we land in our thinking might also affect where we land in our funding. Larry, I don't know what your what your reaction is to that idea. Well, I, I have a point of view about that, and it was really informed by the experience some years ago on integrated rural development, where we came to understand something we should have known from the beginning, which is that things are connected to each other. And so you can very plausibly say, okay, if you want to increase agriculture, you need better connectivity in terms of infrastructure, or you need better education or health, or pick your pick whatever happens to speak to you in that. And I think we correctly managed to evolve our notions of how those things related conceptually, but we never caught up managerially how to really make those things come together. And I think we're seeing the same thing now around climate. Everything is affected by climate. I can't think of a thing that isn't. And similarly, almost everything affects climate. But to recognize that isn't to solve it and to somehow figure out where are there virtuous cycles that you can break in with something that will have a generative effect. Like, for example, people were smart enough to figure out about girls' education. If that was a place into the into the cycle where you could work on one thing and have it affect a lot of things, I think we're going to have something very similar that we need to do around climate. Because if all we do is recognize the complexity and the interlinks, we're going to paralyze ourselves with that complexity. I, I love how you put that. And I think maybe a good example is around global health. And, and a number of those philanthropic pledges that we reported on this week out of COP relate to health. And there's been, there was the first year ever that the COP had a, a health day. There was a big focus on the connection between climate and health. But a lot of the people in the health world I talked to say, well, what's really new and different? Like, isn't the solution here just health system strengthening? And we've been doing that for a really long time. Like, what's, what are we really going to do that's different now that we know climate change is, is moving the path of, say, mosquito-borne uh, diseases and, and, and it's changing maybe where cholera is present because of flooding? 
okay, those things are true and they're happening. The burden of disease is shifting, but actually, uh, when you think about it, what we really need is the same thing. And are we just dressing up something we've been doing anyway in climate language because that's the area of focus of the day? Um, I know you, Yolanda, come from DFID and Save the Children, and you've been working at this kind of nexus of climate and other issues for a while. How do you see this this framework, the kind of mental model that we're using around this evolving? Yeah, well, I totally agree with Larry that climate affects everything and everything affects climate and, and we shouldn't paralyze ourselves. I do think it's true that um, a lot of what we need are better systems, like resilient and strong uh systems such as education systems and and I also agree with Larry that like girls education is is kind of magic it's a magic uh priority because it affects so many things and and leads to so many good outcomes and I think similarly um you know for healthcare systems absolutely climate change provides an additional um you know risk rising risk factor to to people's health and we, what we need is kind of stronger better health systems that understand those changing risks the the more frequent heat waves the changes in vector borne diseases etc so to some extent it is more of the same but i think um climate change is pushing us to to even more think about how we create systems that are adaptable and resilient and I mean I, I have to mention social protection schemes as well and, and when I was at, um, the, in the UK government and at Save the Children you know we pushed very hard to to encourage countries to look at social protection systems that's that's regular national payments to say people in old age or people who have young children child benefits those systems are incredibly important because again they can be used to do things like provide extra payments after an extreme event after a flood and I think that looking ahead with the climate impacts we need to just think about how do we build these important fundamental systems and allow them to be more shock responsive and responsive how do we maybe use some of the potential of ai and technology to kind of leapfrog what was previously kind of slow and and painful ways of responding to shocks and maybe potentially you know be able to do things much more quickly at the press of a button for example getting cash transfers out really quickly through having more pre-registration of, of vulnerable households that we know are already living in say climate vulnerable areas are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organizations like the world bank usaid or the gates foundation then you need to be reading devex pro I'm Jessica Abrahams, and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com pro. I'd love to get both your take on philanthropy and some of what we reported this week, because I know you're both pretty well connected to that space. You know, it was with very little fanfare, once again, that Mackenzie Scott announced her latest giving. Uh, we, you know, quoted Gabrielle Fitzgerald uh, in one of our pieces about this, saying that she gave $2 billion away this year, and she announced that in just 54 words which I think works out to something like $37 million per word. So she continues to be 
very low key, very understated, very different than so many of the announcements we have in our our philanthropy article about the cop where you know there's big fanfare and multiple press releases and speeches and the like. And I think if you add up the announcements coming out of cop by major philanthropies, it's in the maybe billion, billion and a half range. Uh, we still don't even know how much of that is really new money. Um, and here is Mackenzie Scott doing two billion. And of course, in this very different way, you know, still very direct giving to small organizations, for the most part, grassroots with no strings attached whatsoever. Um, you know, given where the two of you sit, knowing what you know about philanthropies, I'm curious about your take on both what you may have read about the COP philanthropies and, and also about what Mackenzie Scott announced. Larry, you have a thought? I do. I think the Mackenzie Scott influence and impact has been enormous. And I'm I don't know her personally, but I'm very grateful to her for what she for what she's done on that because she's really, in a sense, put people up against their rhetoric in terms of trust-based philanthropy, which I personally don't think is a substitute for the other kind of philanthropy, but I think it really does create a kind of a dynamic that really moves everyone ahead on this to look for situations in which, whether it's at the indiv individual level or at the organizational level, where the most sensible thing to do is to simply give people resources to pursue the things they know best how to do. And she's really set the bar high on that. And I think we're all better for her, her having done that. Having said that, I think on certain kinds of areas, trying to get funders coordinated around things and really trying to build strategies that are deliberate and purposeful and that bring a lot of actors together is also important. And the I think there was some of that at COP28. I wish there were even more uh, because I'm of the opinion now that in many cases, the philanthropies are more fleet footed than the official donors are not necessarily larger, but, the, but more fleet footed in their ability to work across silos and their ability to convene things in ways that don't have a kind of a political overtone in the same way. So I, as, as you know, Raj, I run a community of practice on scaling, and we've done this year 15 case studies on how different donors, everything from the World Bank on down to small foundations, how they do or don't incorporate a systematic focus on scale in what they do. And we're going to focus next year particularly on foundations, because one of the takeaways from this is that there are cases where foundations we think are punching way above their weight but there's a lot of extra potential not yet realized that we think foundations can bring to bear on some of these larger change processes. Yeah, in a way, Yolanda, I think of what direct cash transfers do is sort of a, the ultimate in trust-based philanthropy. So I would expect you might appreciate what Mackenzie Scott is doing, but what do you think about the juxtaposition of her approach and what you see other more strategic philanthropies doing. Well, I think I first have to also applaud Mackenzie Scott for what she's doing. I think it's it's phenomenal, it's, it's very trust-based, and I think it's transformational for a huge number of the NGOs that have benefited from her giving. And, and I think that, that what I would advise NGOs to do with the, in receipt of that very kind of unrestricted funding is to really think about how they leverage it strategically for their future, right? Because it may only come once. It's an incredibly important gift, as, they, as it were. And um, it's really important to leverage that effectively. I think uh, it, it juxtaposing it to other philanthropists, I understand why others have like different approaches and, and potentially kind of more demanding and rigorous um, 
processes and follow up. I think um, I think there's some really interesting priorities emerging. I think one thing I will applaud is those philanthropists have been really strong on evidence-based approaches. I, I kind of have to particularly applaud. I think there there's been a, they've been able to sort of quite often lead the way in terms of like being very rigorous about what is the you know return on investment etc and i think again on cash transfers um well, it's been a mixture of philanthropists actually and usaid also um sort of being really interesting in this space doing things like benchmark studies where you compare things like direct cash giving or then spending the equivalent amount of that cash for say a training program or a wash and nutrition program and really looking at, at what things produce the most impact um so i i think those kind of initiatives are really incredibly helpful i think a couple of other philanthropists have been doing some really interesting things in the in the space with how to attract more private sector investment and addressing those those blockages that exist where for example i mentioned earlier you know why are we investing so little in renewables in in the african continent a lot of it is about risk and that's another really important area where i do see philanthropists potentially kind of helping to kind of de-risk longer term private sector investment so i think there's a really interesting range of ways in which philanthropists are supporting what what we know for climate change is is the need to really rapidly accelerate what we're doing i mean lots of great things are happening around the world but we all know it's not nearly at the pace um that it's needed to be that it needs to be to kind of prevent runaway global warming you know exceeding the 1.5 degree global warming and and making sure that we protect lives and livelihoods as well yeah and i'm glad you brought up evidence-based philanthropy that's certainly one of the big themes that you see in the philanthropic world i think the other big one is localization and we continue to cover that because it's probably one of the bigger themes if you're optimistic or fads if you're pessimistic in our space these days. And uh, in fact, we covered this week, USAID came out with some new guidance on what they mean by one of their key targets around localization. Larry, I'm assuming you're clued into the story. I'm curious uh, if you want to share with people sort of what we learned about USAID's approach this week and what you think of it. You know, and for those who haven't been following it, USAID some time ago came out with a double-barreled objective on localization. The first was that 25% of their funding would be a target for direct funding of local, with, to and through local organizations. In other words, not as sub-grants, not as subcontracts, but as direct recipients. And the second one, which got less attention at the time, was that 50% of funding would be locally led, would be somehow significantly influenced by strong local voices and local preferences. And at the beginning, because the first one had immediate financial implications for current implementing partners, it sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But now they're beginning to find their way back to the other, I would say, more fundamental issue, which is who's really making the, de the decision about how resources are used. And this year, I'm sorry, this week, they came out with guidance on how they're, at least for the near term, going to measure that. They identified a set of practices, a total of 14 of them, and they said they're going to judge whether something is or isn't a, a claim against the 50% if it meets at least two of those criteria. I've written about this quite a lot, and I've got a kind of complicated feelings about it. On the one hand, I think linking it to bureaucratic processes gives it a certain kind of tangibility for aid officers and others but I really worry that it kind of sucks the life out of it. And if you think about just kind of common sense, what it really feels like for something to be locally led, uh, 
ticking a couple of these boxes does not feel like it to me. Most of the things to me that really would constitute local leadership are upstream from implementation. They really have to do with trying to figure out what USAID spends its money on and how it programs those resources. And by the time it gets to implementation, those decisions have in large measure been made. Uh, we suggested in the paper that we wrote a series of ways that aid could try to push some of that local ownership meaningfully upstream. Uh, and I think the indicators they came up with, the ones they selected, the 14, reflects that spirit a little bit. But I hope the external community will continue to keep pressure on USAID and USAID will keep pressure on itself to really continue to think hard about what local ownership really means and what that means in terms of participation, engagement, and transfers of power. Uh, I'll say just one more thing, which is that I think USAID is not entirely its own master on this, because if you look over a longish period of time, there's been more and more reliance on either congressional earmarks or administration initiatives. Those things tend to be driven centrally, not at the country level, and it makes it much harder for a mission or a program or an external actor to really engage on its own terms rather than trying to see itself as an implementation point for things that have been developed elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was an excellent analysis, Larry. And so much comes down to what you started with, which is like, does this feel local or not? And, you know, in, in a sense, what a lot of people are concerned with is that this approach to localization is going to land in a very legalistic sort of bureaucratic frame where people are trying to check various boxes. On the other hand, you know, what do you do if you're USAID or another official donor? At the end of the day, you do need some kind of a framework, but, but you can easily imagine organizations reading the, this article in DevEx and then scrambling to figure out how do we sort of reverse engineer things we were gonna do anyway and, and check one or two of these boxes, right? I think it's two boxes minimum across at least two categories. There's mm -hmm. four categories they've laid out. And it's a similar problem, I think, on the other target, the 25% target, where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a fascinating situation. The big international NGOs are saying, you know what, we don't think our local chapters should count as local enough. Um, and yet the rules seem to imply that they do. And, you know, as you say, people kind of go after whatever the incentive is. And if the incentive is just to meet these terms, you may see a lot of people scrambling to do that. Yolanda, what, what are your thoughts? I, I know you may not live in, in USAID world the same, the same way that Larry does. You're based in the UK. But uh, you know, this localization theme is playing out all over the world. What, what's your take on this approach? Well, I think um, USAID actually is a funder of Give Directly um, in a number of countries. And we have been following this closely and attended the meeting and, and looked at this good practice list. I think the key thing for me to say is probably that we applaud the intention of this work and the sort of intended intended um, kind of direction, basically the idea of like shifting more power locally and, and you know, decolonizing aid to some extent. And I think that how it plays out in practice with this exact 14 points and, you know, pick two from two different categories and you, and you get a yes is a little bit more like I feel a could be potentially a bit tokenistic as you're both sort of saying. And I think some of those good practices, I feel like almost should be mandatory, you know, implementing participatory monitoring and evaluation and learning feels like, like that should be in every program, you know what I mean? So um, I think it's a good attempt, but I, I don't think it'll be enough. And what I would hope is that 
in implementing this USAID kind of keeps listening and learning, particularly with local organizations that they're working with in different countries around the world and, and continues to kind of strengthen and build on the actual foundational purpose behind this, um, you know, because obviously they do need to put in place some kind of way of tracking. And I understand that. But I think at the moment it's it's kind of a little bit um you know, something that that's good enough, but I think definitely, um, definitely, there's scope to improve. And and what I would would add to it is, you know, from the kind of point of view of give directly and our kind of radical, you know, power shifting by giving people unconditional cash directly to them, I would say that you know that sort of thing is not reflected at all in this. And I do think, even though, of course, not all aid should be given in that way, and of course, infrastructure and systems building, and et cetera, et cetera, is all incredibly important too. I would like to see some kind of measure of how are how are the recipients um, being empowered in this. And, and I think one way of empowering recipients, obviously, is to give them cash. But there might be a bit more focus on that within some of these good practices as they move forward. Yeah, there's a chance, Yolanda, that Give Directly wouldn't count as a locally led approach, when you look at this list, um, you know, it's, it's, it all depends on how you ultimately define these. And I guess maybe the, the big next thing we have to wait for is to see how USAID ultimately scores itself against this, right? The target is 50%. If they come back and say, well, actually we're at 90%, you know, based on this set of 14 criteria, it would show that perhaps these are just much too loose in their implementation and the way that they're being defined at the mission level. I don't expect that to be the case, but a lot comes down to that kind of implementation of these 14 uh, good practices. Uh, but, you know, I think as you described it, it's it's challenging to think of what USAID ought to do otherwise. You know, what's the counterfactual? When you set a target, you get everyone's attention. And so I guess they could have decided not to set a 50% or a 25% target, but without it, people may not have taken this as seriously. And then, of course, once you set that, you do need to have some way to measure it. Um, so it's a really difficult position to be in. But this is, I think, where a lot of whether or not this succeeds or fails will play out. It's in these kinds of details, which we will continue to cover. We're, we're running a little bit short on time, and I wanted to get your your collective take on the uh, story about Sydney McCain that we've been covering pretty extensively at DevX. And I think just for people who haven't seen it yet, um, there's been a real... Um, a real controversy within the World Food Program, and it's stemming in large part from the situation in Gaza and a feeling among some World Food Program staffers that Cindy McCain has not been sufficiently outspoken on the issues. And then in part as well about the broader situation that WFP finds itself in at a, at a time of uh, really extreme need and declining budgets. And um, the need to kind of pull back food assistance, reduce food assistance in several contexts around the world from Afghanistan to Yemen and elsewhere. So I, I guess there's a there's a big question mark about her leadership and, and how it's playing out and a big controversy that we've been reporting on pretty extensively. Have you seen those pieces, Larry and Yolanda? Any, any thoughts about what, what the implications are? I, I've seen the pieces and I would say two things. One is I'm glad I'm not Cindy McCain. Uh, I mean, it just seems to me this is such a difficult time to lead an organization. The issues are so raw. It's so easy to get it wrong and so hard to get it right. 
that I don't have a position on what she specifically did or didn't do, but I do know, having watched a lot of organizations I consult to right now, I feel a great deal of empathy for their leaders. It's just very hard not to hit a, a third rail as you move forward, and she obviously did. I mean, you can see it again in a completely different set of issues on the the recent discussions before Congress of these three university presidents. It's just really hard to get it right. So I have a certain amount of sympathy for her situation, whether I would agree with the specifics of what she did or not. The other thing is the thing that you referred to, which is I think the situation in terms of food is going to be horrible in 2024. And we noticed it first around the Ukraine situation, but now look at it with all the climate-related activities and all the displacement that's going on. This is not the last case where food is going to be the, the issue around which people are in deep conflict and where values get tested and, and, and frankly, patience gets, gets torn. Yeah, it gets right. And in the United States and Europe, there's a lot of focus on how we're starting to turn the corner on high interest rates. And, you know, maybe inflation is now in a much better place and the macroeconomic situation looks pretty good. But in, I guess, around 30 or so countries that are, you know, in the low income, uh, in low income countries, there's severe debt crisis. As these countries face their own macroeconomic headwinds, their currencies depreciate and it's a lot harder to buy food imports that they might rely on. Um, so, yeah, I agree. WFP is going to be in the news you know, whether or not it's Cindy McCain for quite a while. Yolanda, do you have any thoughts on, on those stories? Yeah, no, I, I just think I would echo that. I was working on the sort of global hunger crisis for the last year or so, even in Save the Children before I joined Give Directly. And I think it's one of those crises that is maybe not hitting the headlines for the general public, but is phenomenal. And I think it's, you know, from since the Ukraine crisis and onwards, the, you know, the price of food, the price of fuel has just been incredibly high and the debt levels in many countries who took out debt to sort of respond to the COVID crisis and haven't been able to really kind of recover is, is shocking. And we see that in many, many countries that where we're working, for, for example, in Malawi. So I... I just think it is a really difficult time at the moment to be a humanitarian. I mean, looking at you know, p- people with the humanitarian humanitarian principles in their heart are looking with horror at situations around the world. Obviously, the, the impact on the civilian population in Gaza is horrific, but but all around the world, there are really quite extreme humanitarian needs and, and absolutely not enough uh, funding to go around, whether it's WFP's funding, but also for sort of all the huge range of humanitarian actors. So I do, you know, again, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but I, I do think that... Um, you know, many developed countries are turning a bit of a corner, but we need to like make sure that we don't take take our eyes off the needs around the world and, and that we kind of make sure that as far as possible, we continue to be kind of outward looking and generous uh, uh, and the countries and philanthropists, et cetera, who can afford to support people in very, very difficult situations continue to do that. Yeah, and I think it points to maybe another layer in that story about Cindy McCain and, and, and a layer to the story about COP, which is, this kind of growing divide and distrust between the global North and global South, that there's a sense that whatever solidarity there was is starting to really fray. And obviously the situation in Ukraine was a big part of it. I think the situation in Gaza as well continues it. And, you know, it's not incidental that Cindy McCain, as, as the executive director of World Food Program, is effectively appointed by the U.S. president, right? And we have a number of agencies in the U.N. that 
that operate this way where the appointment is effectively made by either the U.S. government, by tradition, because it's the largest funder. I'm thinking about UNICEF and IOM, um, and here in this case, uh, World Food Program, or by the U.K. government, uh, or by the German government. I mean, there's a number of these agencies that are just, by tradition, they're controlled by one of the major donor countries. And what that means is the politics of that donor country end up playing out in that agency. And I think you're seeing that in this case. And I think the lack of trust um, is really playing out in the case of Cindy McCain. She may be kind of symbolic of, of what's going on much more broadly than World Food Program. So that, that's a big theme and a story we've been covering here and following here at DevX that we, we will continue to. I want to say thanks to Yolanda and to Larry for a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground in a busy news week. And uh, we will not be on next week as we are getting underway for the holidays. So we're going to miss everybody, but we'll see you back for our first episode in the new year. So if I don't talk to, to all of you, have a wonderful holiday break. We take a full week off here at DevX uh, to try to rest up and come back uh, for a busy news season in 2024. Larry Cooley, uh, Yolanda Wright, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Happy holidays. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.